So when I started studying this, it was always the brain-gut axis, this linear concept that the brain controls the gut and the gut sends signals to the brain. This has clearly changed for me in terms of a systems biological paradigm shift that you look at this in a very different way. And I think if you want to contribute to our health, both maintaining health, but also treating some of these chronic illnesses, I think it's essential that we have this new view of the brain-gut microbiome system. Emron Meyer is a world-renowned gastroenterologist and neuroscientist studying how the digestive system and the nervous system interact in health and disease. He's a distinguished research professor in the departments of medicine, physiology, and psychiatry at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and executive director of the G. Oppenheimer Center for Neurobiology of Stress and Resilience, funded by the NIH and Philanthropy. I'm Luann Heinen, and this is the Business Group on Health podcast, conversations with experts on the most important health and well-being issues facing employers. My guest is Emron Meyer, and we'll be talking about the body's largest immune organ, the gut biome, and its connection to our physical and mental health. Today's episode is sponsored by Pair Therapeutics. Pair Therapeutics discovers, develops, and delivers clinically validated software-based therapeutics to provide better outcomes for patients, smarter engagement, and tracking tools for clinicians, and cost-effective solutions for payers. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Meyer. Nice to be on it. Thanks for inviting me. I'd like to start with what brought you to this line of study and research. Well before gut health was the hot topic it's become. Well, it's really been a career-long interest of mine. Uh, I've always been interested in mind or brain-body interactions all the way back to medical school, first started studying during my thesis work, the interactions between the brain and the heart. And then during my clinical training, I decided gastroenterology was really my field. And um, I realized that a lot of patients had some aspect of um, brain-gut disturbance, which at the time was really not something that was in vogue or popular. And I've really pursued this for the last 35 years or so. Well, tell us a little bit more about the gut and in particular, what the gut biome is. So the gut, contrary to what most people believe, it's not a simple tube optimized for digestion and absorption. It's probably one of the most, probably the most complex organ in our body. It has its own nervous system, about 100 million nerve cells. It has 80% of all our immune cells in the body. It has the biggest endocrine system producing lots of hormones. Satiety hormones, for example, are an important one. All these cell types that are present in the gut that you won't see, even when you do an endoscopy, you won't see them. They're hidden under the surface of the gut, but they are able to interact with these 40 trillion microbial organisms that live inside our gut and they're really living in symbiosis with our gut and with our body because there's connecting pathways between the microbes, the gut, and then from there on to the brain, to the liver, to all the other organs. So I learned in biology quite a while ago that the brain controlled everything. Brain controlled the nervous system, brain controlled all of our systems. How Exactly, does the gut relate to our brain? And with 100 million nerve cells and 80% of our immune cells and some ability to control hormones through like its own endocrine system, how does it compete with the brain? 
So the brain-gut interactions or the brain-gut microbiome interactions, I like to refer to them as a system of interconnected hubs or nodes. So it's not the linear concept that we traditionally have applied to biology, that there's one control organ and it controls everything else. It's a bidirectional communication. So the microbes and the gut, they send signals to the brain. The brain processes every signal that comes from the gut, even though we don't perceive most of them consciously, and then it responds to them. Most of the time, the brain doesn't really need to interfere with the functioning of the gut because of that little brain we have in our gut, which runs essentially the digestive functions. But every time there's a stress signal or distress signal coming up from the gut, the brain will get engaged. It will either produce a pain sensation or a sensation of discomfort. But at the same time, it will send back signals via the stress pathways, the autonomic nervous system that can change every gut function. A lot of people are now focusing on the prominent role of the gut, but we shouldn't forget that what happens in the gut is in some ways a mirror image what happens in the emotional part of our brain. So if we are angry, if we are fearful, if you are happy, the brain will send these non-perceived, non-conscious signals to the gut and adapts every gut function, including the microbes. So the microbes know if you are stressed, if you're angry, if you're afraid, or if you're happy, the microbes will know it, will change their function, and the gut will know it, and the immune system will know it. So it's um, the best way to explain it is a bidirectional complex interacting system with all parts contributing to the end result, which is maintaining health and uh, homeostasis. Wow, that is really something. I mean, the physical and emotional manifestations of this gut-brain connection are things that probably most of us don't understand. Yeah, most people don't know about it. It's great that the lay public is so interested in gut health now. I think it's a great thing. So it's clearly leading to improved nutrition, diet, health-promoting behaviors. Few people understand the complexity of that system and how central it is to our health um, in combination you know, with the immune system and the nervous system. It certainly changed my view. So when I started studying this, it was always the brain-gut axis this linear concept, you know, that the brain controls the gut and the gut sends signals to the brain. This has clearly changed for me in terms of a systems biological paradigm shift that you look at this in a very different way. And I think if you want to contribute to our health, both maintaining health, but also treating some of these chronic illnesses, I think it's essential that we have this new view of the brain-gut microbiome system. So what are some of the physical and emotional manifestations of the gut-brain connection? So as I mentioned, I mean, any emotional reaction in our brain will have a mirror image in the body and particularly in the gut. And it's transmitted via these both nerve pathways that go, the autonomic nervous system goes from the brain to the gut, but also cortisol and other hormones that can alter gut activity. And when I say gut, it always means microbial activity as well. So stress also, both acute stress and chronic stress will create a different gut or state of the gut that, um, you know, may either be symptomatic or like 
cramps, bloating, um, discomfort, but it also may even interfere with the normal digestion that the gut normally does. So one simple advice when you sit down for a meal is don't do it when you're stressed out. Your gut will not be in the right mood, just like you are not. Your gut will not be in the right mood to digest this food properly. What about the connection to more serious diseases, things like development over time of Alzheimer's or Parkinson's? Yeah, this is a fascinating question because, you know, very few people would have thought before this sort of first popped up in the lay press that something like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's would have anything to do with the gut. There's pretty good epidemiology on this that Parkinson's, for example, can start in the gut up to 14 years before there's any neurological manifestations and emotional changes. If you could take a biopsy in your intestine at this early stage, people present with new onset constipation. If you took a biopsy, you will see the same histological changes in the nervous system in the gut that later appear in the central nervous system. So imagine 14 years before anything happens at the brain level, there's already this process going on with degeneration of nerve cells in the gut resulting in constipation. And then it's thought that gradually this process moves up through the vagus nerve that connects us with the brainstem and the brain. These changes gradually migrate up in this nerve and then manifest at brainstem level and brain level and cortical level ultimately producing all these characteristic neurological changes. And with Alzheimer's disease, there's also now growing evidence that metabolites being generated by microbes, by an altered gut microbiome, play a role in the neuroinflammation and neurodegeneration in the brain of vulnerable people that have, for example, a family history of Alzheimer's disease or have uh, biochemical, these biomarkers of uh, Alzheimer's disease. So it's kind of amazing that two diseases that have been exclusively thought to be happening at the brain level, that they would start in the gut and where the gut would play a major role in determining the course. This, of course, opens up amazing opportunities for intervention. You know, these are devastating diseases. We certainly don't have cures for them or effective treatments in the case of Alzheimer's. If we have more than 10 years' time to interfere with that development of disease from the gut to the brain, this opens up a huge opportunity for novel therapeutic interventions, either aimed at the microbiome or aimed at the gut. Wow. So we're going to talk about what makes for a healthy gut, but is it true that a largely plant-based diet is associated with lower risk and severity of COVID-19? So there's epidemiological studies. I'm sure there will be more data coming out on this. It has been shown that, you know, starting out in the beginning, that people with an unhealthy gut microbiome are more likely to develop more severe forms of COVID-19, are more likely to end up in the intensive care unit, more likely to die. Now there's also evidence that they're more likely to develop long COVID. Mm. It's a very complicated problem, obviously. But if we think about it in simple terms, COVID-19 doesn't really happen in the gut primarily. It happens in the lungs, in the respiratory system. But since all the immune cells that ultimately end up in the pulmonary, in the respiratory system, in the lungs, go through the gut, 
they're altered. So in general, there was an increased responsiveness of immune cells. So for example, this term cytokine storm, you know, an increased immune response to the virus in the lungs because they have been programmed in the gut in response to a poor nutrition, a weak compromised gut microbiome. There's also been data that people in lower socioeconomic uh, parts of the society with a poor diet uh, were disproportionately affected by COVID-19, particularly with the more serious complications. So there's clearly a, a direct link, I would say, between a unhealthy diet, a compromised gut microbiome, an overactive immune system, and the complications of COVID-19. Here's an easy question. No science needed, maybe. Maybe not. We hear people talking about their gut decisions. Is there evidence for that? Yeah. So when I wrote my first book, I mean, this was something that fascinated me, this um, prevalence of terms like gut feelings or gut reactions in our language. It was pretty interesting while writing the book. I mean, I paid a lot of attention to this, and there was not a day that I wouldn't hear in the news at least five times that prominent people in sports, in politics, would use that expression. So diving a little bit deeper, it gets really complicated and hypothetical. What I came up with, sort of one of the explanations is, there's clearly always a a reaction at the brain level to an emotional uh, situation, to to a stressor, to happy, negative uh, events. But this doesn't just happen at the brain. As we talked about earlier, there's always a gut component to any emotion. And what the brain does, I mean, there's quite a bit of evidence for that. It stores all these emotional moments uh, somewhere in the brain. I use this uh, expression in tiny video clips. So every emotional experience that we have gone through from the time we were infants with a lot of negative emotions, um, with gut reactions, All this is stored somewhere in the brain in a supercomputer. And just like a search engine for Netflix or Google, our brain can access this vast database helping to make a decision based on these previous emotional moments. That's something, you know, I've discussed this with other prominent neuroscientists. So I I think right now, this supercomputer model that we have obviously will get more sophisticated in the future. But right now, It's a good way to think about this. Making a gut-based decision is a decision that you don't go through a plus and minus list with rational, slow, linear process, which could take you days, but it happens instantaneously because your brain can access, um, just like when you type in the first letter in the Google search, (laughs) it can give you the right answer. So that's a good model right now to understand that. We've often heard about the concept of healing the gut. What does that mean? And do we all have healing to do? Yeah, this is a really interesting question for somebody like myself who's been a gastroenterologist for, you know, all my career, where we really dealt with gut diseases. Gut diseases means you can see something, you can take a biopsy, you see abnormalities on, on a biopsy. And the number of gut diseases was relatively limited. You know, the people that have gut diseases, like inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome or colon cancer or peptic ulcer. This was a relatively small fraction of the population. So now what's happened, um, 
this concept of gut health that's become so popular, there's really no basis in terms of, you know, nobody can do an endoscopy and see if you have that kind of a gut health. So you don't have a disease, but you want to know, is my gut healthy? You can't see the leakiness. You can't see the low-grade immune activation. You can't see the imbalance of the microbes. So all of this, in some ways, you could say is hypothetical. That kind of gut health is not based on true scientific observations. It's based on observations in animal models. And there's been a lot of speculation about this concept of, you know, the leaky gut and all the complications that it can lead to. But it's not something, if you come into my practice and say, do I have a leaky gut? I could not tell you that for sure. I said, yeah, certain circumstances would point in that direction but I can't make a definitive diagnosis of that. And so we have now two different realms. You know, we have the realm of traditional gastroenterology. We have the realm of functional medicine physicians. For them, it's very easy to make these diagnoses, um, not based on evidence, but just based on what they feel, based on the symptoms. And then we have the science that's trying to provide evidence to support some of these concepts. So that's the environment right now that patients and people that talk about gut health should be aware about. I'm speaking with Dr. Emran Meyer, and this is the Business Group on Health podcast. We'll be back right after this short break. Prescription digital therapeutics, or PDTs, are software-based medicines to treat serious disease. At Paratherapeutics, our mission is clear. We are pioneers in PDTs. Our cross-functional team operates at the intersection of biology and software technology, where researchers and clinicians work side-by-side with software engineers and developers to create the next generation of therapeutics. Pair discovers, develops, and delivers clinically validated software to provide better outcomes for patients, smarter engagement and tracking for clinicians, and cost-effective solutions for payers. Every day, we push the boundaries of technology to transform medicine. So if you buy into the idea that it makes sense to try and prevent a leaky gut or an unbalanced gut, what should you do both in the food front or when it comes to maybe more mindfulness or outside the food front? This is a very important question. And um, based on this kind of linear thinking that um, in the West, we've sort of grown up with this. So to think there's only one thing, it's the healthy diet, you know, that we need to adhere to or supplements or whatever targeted at the gut, that that would give us a healthy gut. Coming to this new concept that I talked about before, the this brain gut microbiome system, you have different targets within that system that you can address, that you can target for improving the health of that system. Starting at the brain, clearly a mindful state, um, minimizing negative emotions, reducing chronic stress. You don't have to worry about acute stress, which is actually a good thing for us. So, you know, it's over in a few seconds or minutes. It's the chronic stress and the worry. That's really what you want to avoid. So that's dealing with the brain part. Then you want to deal with um, the microbiome part. So a big influence of that is clearly the diet, also the immune system. A diet that is high in plant-based foods, it has two types of ingredients, this diet. 
If it's a varied diet with a minimum of 15 different fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds um, per week, then it increases the diversity of your gut microbes. It also provides the gut microbes with fuel to generate anti-inflammatory molecules like the short-chain fatty acids. So this is kind of the aspirin of our microbiome system and of our body, really. Um, if your microbiome generates enough of these anti-inflammatory substances from the fibers and complex carbohydrates that are in, in a plant-based diet, then you will downregulate any inflammatory reactions that might be going on, both in at the level of the gut, the immune system, but also at the brain. So they get into your systemic circulation. There's many other molecules um, that are generated from a plant-based diet. They have been shown to have beneficial effects on your brain-gut microbiome system. I mean, there's many other ingredients in the diet that are not exclusively present in a plant-based diet, such as uh, tryptophan, but overall, if you take the benefits that you get from the fiber, the complex carbohydrates, the generation of these anti-inflammatory molecules, and another class of molecules, which are always been referred to as the antioxidants, in most plant-based foods, in berries, coffee, cacao, um, olive oil, just to name a few, they don't really function as antioxidants in our body. Because when you ingest the fruits with these compounds, which are called polyphenols, they're such large compounds that they can't be absorbed in our small intestine intact. So they migrate down into our large bowel and they're broken down by the microbes into smaller absorbable molecules, which then exert the beneficial effect on our organs. So the fiber on the one side broken down in anti-inflammatory molecules and the polyphenols on the other side being broken down into these health-promoting anti-inflammatory molecules are really the two ingredients of a plant-based diet. And you won't get them with any other, um, the extreme diets that have been proposed that come and go. It's kind of amazing to me that this discussion still goes on, you know, where the evidence is so strong. Absolutely. What is a gut expert, for example, yourself, eat in a day? Just, just a few staples. What are some staples in your pantry? Like, I'm going to guess chia seeds. Uh, definitely chia seeds. Very high in fiber and polyphenols. Um, I should say it started out really during the book writing of the Mind-Gut Connection. We experienced in the family, this was also during the lockdown, with different ways of creating the gut-healthiest food. And we started with a breakfast bowl, including whole grain cereal. But it really turned into, I would say, a bowl packed with fiber-containing and polyphenol-containing nuts and seeds, um, cacao-fermented, naturally-fermented products. Um, we've been eating this every day. Okay, so falling into a food habit is okay for healthy gut. It doesn't have to be endless variety. Yeah, I, I think it's very important to have it. I mean, you can vary the components. So this current bowl that we create has about... Um, between 10 and 15 components, which vary depending on the seasons because the, the kind of berries we add to it based on the season. Salads are a good example. You know, we, we actually count the vegetables and the seeds and berries that go into the salads. And it can be between 15 and 20 per salad, which comes later in the day for an early dinner. 
We've also implemented a time-restricted eating schedule. So I wouldn't call this first polyphenol fiber bowl breakfast because we delay this till 11, 12. So we have our yeah. 16 hours in the 24-hour rhythm where we leave the gut empty. Great discipline. Hey, what qualifies as a naturally fermented food? This is also a good question. So this fermentation doesn't generate microbial organisms that necessarily meet the criteria for a probiotic. There has to be a demonstrated health benefit. If you eat something, take something from the outside, there has to be a demonstrated health benefit for the host, for us. For many of these things like you know sauerkraut, uh, kimchi, kombucha, those studies have not been done, so they've not the demonstration has not happened. But there's indirect studies that if people are on a varied diet of naturally fermented foods, that this has a positive effect on the diversity of their gut microbiome. A greater effect, surprisingly, than a fiber-rich diet. It's something that, you know, taste preferences play a role. Not everybody likes kimchi. But there's enough things that you can incorporate in any diet or taste preference that will allow you to have at least three of those f fermented food products. Uh, what about yogurt and sourdough bread? It's definitely included. And there's different forms of um, fermented dairy products, from kefir to uh, different kinds of yogurts. There's plant-based yogurts. Um, there are studies. So we have done one where we you know, found that... Uh, one particular mix of microbial strains in, in a commercially available yogurt has an effect on brain circuits related to the stress system. You know, there's other studies that do support a health benefit. It's been controversial, you know, with probiotic supplements, I would say to summarize a kind of controversial area, definitely science has demonstrated beneficial effects in children and infants with certain uh, you know, health problems, decreasing the risk of um, asthma and allergies. There's a few companies that are willing to invest the money to do randomized control big studies to test if certain probiotic strains with or without a added fiber component to it, so-called symbiotics, if they have a positive effect, for example, in irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease or after a course of antibiotics. But the evidence in the adult is not as strong as you would like to see so far. Let's pivot and chat a little bit about things that relate to the employer world. For companies with on-site cafes and vending machines, what kinds of food can they make available to their employees? Yeah, this is a very important um, topic. So definitely the accessibility and availability and promotion of healthy drinks which are essentially drinks without sugar and also without artificial sweeteners. They also have a negative effect on gut microbial function and on gut health. In terms of drinks or in terms of any kind of food, really the removal as much as possible of sugar-containing um, items is probably one, one of the most important ones. Um, foods that are minimally processed. I mean, all of our foods are processed, obviously, a yogurt is a processed food. So you want something that's minimally processed. So that includes also raw vegetables. Um, then in terms of this flood of bars that has made it into cafeterias, these energy bars, 
I would say bars that are high in fiber and possibly the polyphenols, I would rank uh, you know, the highest. Protein bars, not everybody needs to boost their protein intake uh, if they're on a balanced diet. So the employers, I think, have a huge opportunity to uh, offer healthy food items. And then there's obviously various behavioral measures that would incentivize giving an award if you have ordered the healthiest food for a week, decreasing the premium that you pay for your health insurance. So there's many ways to motivate people to stick with a healthy diet. This is clearly being one of the most difficult challenges for implementing a healthy diet from the employer side is to keep people motivated. Once they understand why an employer incentivizes certain food, I think it's easier to be motivated to buy it and to stick with it. Yeah, education is still an opportunity. Absolutely. You take an integrative approach to health and incorporate mind and body. What's your call to action for employers? Well, it's not just the cafeteria. So the lifestyle choices, like all these things that we've been talking about, you know, if you do any of these improvements to your gut health or your diet for a week or a month and then fall back to your old habits, it's of no use. Similarly, if you stick to your old habits and are an unhealthy diet, are stressed out or burned out, um, taking supplements will not do it, will not help you. I think employers should target to educate their employees about this concept, the interconnectedness of within the brain-gut microbiome system. There's a good example with what happened during the pandemic, burnout of healthcare workers on the front lines, both the nurses and the physicians that had to deal with this in intensive care units, uh, being faced with you know death and severe disease on a daily basis for, for months, for years. It's something that has to be addressed. So That is chronic stress, as you spoke about. Yeah, and that chronic stress has the same negative effect on gut health and the gut microbiome as what I call chronic dietary stress, which is the standard American diet, low in fiber, low in polyphenols. Uh, the standard American diet has the lowest amount of polyphenols, lowest amount of fiber, most westernized countries in the world. I think if um, employees understand that connection, there's now several ways to help um, patients or, or individuals with these um, behavioral techniques. There's you know several apps from digital therapeutics like um, online CBT, which is very easy to do. There's also online mindfulness. Uh, these things are becoming popular, but I think for an employer to incentivize these or provide them to the employees is a great opportunity. The last one is exercise. So, you know, moderate exercise definitely has a beneficial effect on gut and microbial health and on brain health, as opposed to extreme exercise, which is a stress for the body, like ultramarathons and pushing yourself to the limits, which has the opposite effect. It's again perceived as a stressor by the body. But this daily, moderate, uh, regular um, exercise, aerobic and weight-bearing exercise is another key component to this. It's easy to talk about this in theory and here on this, on this interview. Many healthcare workers, like in LA, they commute. They probably have to get up at 5 in the morning. They have to commute in traffic to get to their workplace. 
same in the evening when they're done. How much time is there to implement these things? So again, this is something maybe it should be offered during the work day that some of these activities are allowed, you know, there's time allowed during the day. Absolutely. You think it has to factor into scheduling and break times and, um, you know, available even nap areas and lots of things. Well, final question, Dr. Meyer, what don't we know yet about the gut microbiome that you'd love to understand in your lifetime? What are the frontiers? So what we don't know about the gut microbiome then is probably something like 90% of what's there to know about it. You know, I, I think we're just scratching at the surface of this field. This will ultimately revolutionize the way we practice medicine, the way we eat, the way we test for early on for disease, like the first traces of um, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease early on based on microbiome testing. We have a long way to go. The good thing is there's an exponential growth of the science. What I would like to see, you know, would be extremely satisfying to see diagnostic tests, early diagnostic tests in asymptomatic individual that they have a, a high risk of developing Parkinson's in about 10 or 14 years, and then having an intervention, which right now would be dietary, but having an intervention that can either slow or prevent this progression to the full neurological disease. I think there's a good chance to see this happening in Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. I would also like to see, so another disease we haven't talked about is uh, autism spectrum, devastating disease, obviously, for parents, increasing in its prevalence uh, over the last 60 years, continue to increase. There seems to be the gut microbiome, brain gut microbiome system seems to be playing a key part. I think if we solve this problem, it would be a tremendous success and uh, forward thinking. So I think testing, early testing, characterization, not what we do now, just measuring what microbes you have in your stool, that's not going to give you the answer. You have to really be able to measure the molecules that your microbes produce and which you can detect in your blood with a simple test with a drop of blood. I think these are the things that I'm, I'm optimistic to be able to see in the next uh, 10 years of uh, coming to fruition. Well, thank you so much. That's hopeful. It's exciting. I really appreciate your time today, Dr. Emron Meyer. Yeah, thanks, Luanne. It was a pleasure talking to you, and hopefully the information is useful to your audience. I've been speaking with Emron Meyer, a gastroenterologist and neuroscientist with an integrative view of brain and body in chronic disease. He's the author of nearly 400 scientific articles and two recent books of popular interest, The Mind-Gut Connection and The Gut-Immune Connection. His website is emronmeyer.com. Check it out for videos, podcasts, and gut-healthy recipes. I'm Luann Heinen. This podcast is produced by Business Group on Health with Connected Social Media. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and like what you heard, please take a moment to give us a review.